This is God's word. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was, ne- and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we look at this world and it seems that it's just one war after other never-ending war. It seems as if peace is a far-off dream, refuge is a far-off place. Lord, we gather here this morning from different places, and even though our circumstances may be different, it sometimes feels as if we are at war with ourselves and with each other. And we come here wondering if somehow, some way, that you are the way out. Um, Father, as we consider the story of Jesus today, would you stand prominently in our minds as that way out, that way out towards peace, towards refuge, refuge, and that the Holy Spirit would comfort us in this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Justice. Okay, so the title of my sermon is Jesus Doesn't Save the Cat. If you're a cat person, my next sermon starts with a nice story about a dog. So. <laughs> okay, so anyway, where does this come from? Um, a few years ago, the comedian Mike Birbiglia and this American Life host Ira Glass produced this film called Sleepwalk With Me, which was based on Mike's one-man show about his sleep disorder. And when they did interviews for the film, they had this really funny story about the test screens they did for the movie. And test screens are kind of like focus groups that are done before a movie is released to wide um, release. And at the beginning, they were having problems because um, one of the early versions of the film, the audience just couldn't understand the relationship between Mike's character, Matt, and his girlfriend, Abby. 
Like, so during the post-show discussions, the audience would ask Mike and Ira, why are Matt and Abby even together? Do they like each other? Do you guys even know what it's like to be in love? Ira said that the audiences would actually get angry at them over this. Fortunately, they, they found a solution, though. Um, and all they had to do was add 40 seconds of film towards the beginning. This short scene where Matt picks up Abby from work. That's it. It added nothing whatsoever to the plot, but it worked. Apparently, it got this trick from a screenwriting book called Save the Cat, which was written by the late Blake Snyder. And it's also the name of the trick they use. Um, and the idea is, if you want to introduce a character and have the audience like him, then you have him do something nice at the beginning of the film, like save a cat. It's nice that they're able to fix their film this way, but why did this even work, you know? It's not obvious that it would work, right? Even Ira Glass said that this was a complete surprise to him. Well, here's, here's my theory. Save the Cat might be new to you, but it's actually pretty popular in Hollywood. You can attend these seminars that teach its principles for screenwriting, and they sell out. Lots of people use this thing. And it's not just a bag of tricks. You know, it's not just a bag of tricks like saving the cat, you know, trick one, trick two. It's actually an entire system for creating a tight and consistent storyline. Um, so the dramatic content of the scenes, the sequence of the scenes, the timing of the scenes, it's all laid out for you. You just need to fill in the details. It's a convenient and effective technique. However, as the film critic Peter Sudeman lamented in an article in Slate, the result of the success of Save the Cat has been all of these films that do well at the box office but are almost indistinguishable from each other in terms of plot. So this made me wonder if there was something really wrong with that early version of Sleepwalk With Me, or if people these days are just so conditioned to expect this formula that it only seemed wrong to them. Right? Any sociology majors? Does this is kind of ring a bell? After all, you only have to save the cat if you have to save the cat, right? If people expect you to save the cat. Oscar Wilde once wrote that life imitates art much more than art imitates life. Agree, disagree? And even though we're not in Hollywood, and even if we're not in show business, I think it's fair to say that we imagine ourselves to be the writer, the director, cinematographer, and the dramatic lead of the grand production that is our lives. And like any filmmaker, we hope that our work ends up being success, if to no one else but ourselves. But while on the surface we think ours is an original take on life, we seem to basically take our pick from a small set of ideas, or systems, if you will, of how to achieve the good life. Every person with something to sell knows this, and that includes preachers. 
this idea bears out in magazines, sitcoms, Facebook and Instagram feeds, conversations between friends and partners. It's why so many people want to live in the same cities, in the same neighborhoods. It's why everyone wants to live in a house or an apartment that looks like something out of HGTV or Dwell. It's why when we're single, we dream of getting with that one person who checks off all the boxes. It's why we pretend to be that person, to get that person. It's why if or when we end up in a couple, we're constantly working against our natural tendencies so we can look and act the way a couple is supposed to look and act. It's why we seek out the same kinds of churches with the same kinds of people as us, because we just get it. Why is it that when we have so much freedom and so many options, that our lives, or at least the lives we dream of and plan for, seem to look like mere variations of a theme that someone else has created? Imagine, if you will, that the Weinstein brothers were to come up to you and hand you a check for $250 million and go tell you to produce next summer's Hollywood blockbuster. If you were given the opportunity, how many of you would choose to create a film within a derivative aesthetic, a lazy casting, a generic setting, and a forgettable screenplay full of contradictory themes and messages? Would you honestly take the Weinstein's money and go make that movie? Well, you might say, even if all that's true, at least the hero got what he wanted in the end. At least the hero, heroine, got her happy ending. At least the story tested well for 95% of test audiences. Most of us will never be given a movie deal, but all of us are given a life, a story that needs to find its story. And so all of us must come to terms with this question that is posed to us by the poet Mary Oliver. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? In our text from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, we meet Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. And after what seemed to be, so we skipped this part, but after what seemed to be a series of successful trips to towns around the Galilee, Jesus returns home to his hometown of Nazareth and joins his neighbors for a Sabbath worship service. Um, and during Jesus' time, Galilee and the surrounding area, which was called Judea, was ruled from afar by the Roman Empire. And if you were here for this, um, Pastor Dave Linder explained to us that at the time, to be a Jew was hard. Your religion was under um, attack. Your economic life was being burdened by taxation. And, and the Romans could even be deadly if you cared enough to take up arms against them. So in the story, you know, we can imagine that the Jews are gathered at the synagogue and they hear Jesus' words from Isaiah and they, <clears throat> and they immediately begin to think. He's talking about us, right? We're the poor. We're the blind ones. We're the ones oppressed by Rome. And so the year of the, Lord, the, year of the Lord's favor is coming. It's coming for us. How exciting. 
Then to add to this excitement, Jesus says this, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? Is Jesus here to fulfill this prophecy? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one who will defeat Rome and restore Israel to its former glory? In verse 22 it says that when Jesus was finished, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. As we would say in Hollywood, this Jesus fellow was going places. I'm going to use, the Hollywood, I'm going to use Hollywood stuff all over. It's funny though, um, when I was doing my research for a sermon, I listened to two other sermons that um, covered this text. But I noticed that instead of going all the way to verse 30, a lot of preachers would finish at verse 22. And if you don't remember, verse 22 is when everyone's like, yay Jesus, you're awesome. And it made me realize that this is probably how this text is preached most of the time. First of all, it's a shorter passage, which makes for a shorter sermon. But also the story is just a lot tidier if you cut it off there, right? People like short and people like tidy. It's a winning combination. But as we saw earlier, small edits can make a big difference. So here's some food for thought. Given your impressions of American Christianity and Americans, how might the story in Luke 4, 16 to 22, the short version, be preached and received in a typical American church with typical American churchgoers? I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. I think that in preaching, one shouldn't be afraid to speak the truth, even if the truth offends people. But I think that, you know, at, at, a, at the barest minimum, you should try to not get yourself killed <laughs> with the words that you say. Jesus had no such reservations, which is why I do not preach like Jesus. <laughs> In isolation, Luke 4, 4 to 6, 4, 16 to 20, it's such a nice story. It's a tidy story. It's a familiar story, right? It, it actually, it pretty much describes what we do here every week if we cut it off at <laughs> verse 22. And if we left the story at verse 22 and never came back to it, we could imagine in our heads Jesus after the service, you know, shaking everybody's hand and making plans to meet up during the week. It doesn't quite work out that way. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what happens, but the mood shifts in the room. Maybe in all the glad-handing and flattery, Jesus overheard something that was just so wrong about what he was trying to say, and he just had to set them straight. So here's my take on what Jesus said. Physician, heal yourself. Do for you what I did in Capernaum. Do you think this is all about you? Let me tell you something. Despite the flattery, despite the kind words, once you go beyond appearances and politeness, a prophet is never accepted in his hometown. Why do you assume that the words of Isaiah are for you specifically? Do you even read the parts of scripture that aren't about you?
Have you forgotten how often God shows grace to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, your enemies, even at the expense of Israel? Remember the widow in Zarephath. Remember Naaman the leper. How are you so sure that I come proclaiming salvation at the expense of the Gentiles? What makes you so certain about the story you have in your heads? And so to bring back a little more Hollywood in the sermon, do you know that movie trope where the nerd or some outsider stands in front of the school and delivers some insulting rant at them, you know, calling out the jocks and the <laughs> cheerleaders? And when he's done, you know, it's just silence. And maybe you hear crickets, you know, even though you're indoors. <laughs> Well, in the movie version of this scene, I imagine that this is exactly what might happen, or exactly how it might be done. Crickets. And then Jesus is just run out of the synagogue. So, dude, so what happened? What happened to our tidy little story? In the first half, people loved Jesus. He seemed to fit so perfectly into this story they had. He seemed to fit so perfectly into their plans, their hopes, and dreams. Well, so much for that theory. How much time do you think elapsed in this passage? A few hours? A day, maybe? I think there's a lesson here. You know, in your own journey to understand Jesus, you should move slowly. Move slowly. Don't jump to conclusions, because if you move too fast, you might miss something. If you have a Bible handy, or if you don't want to, that's fine. Uh, If you have your Bible handy, open it up to Isaiah chapter 61. In these Bibles, you can find it on page 689. I'll give you a few seconds while I get a drink here. Okay, so we'll start at the first verse and read through the second. Okay. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release darkness for the prisoners. Verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Slam. So it's not exactly what Luke recorded, which is kind of interesting for technical reasons, but this is basically where Jesus was reading from. But I wasn't subtle about this at all, but did you notice something else? Okay, (laughs) I was kind of hoping someone would say something, but okay, (laughs) actually, did you notice that to make it fit the story in Luke, I stopped in the middle of verse 2. Anyone notice that? If you read the whole thing, it says this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left that part out. He stopped right before he was supposed to say 
in the day of vengeance of our God. Did anybody in the synagogue that day catch this? Or were they too busy trying to fit Jesus into their own story that they didn't even notice that the story was being rewritten before their eyes? And when the mood turned against Jesus, were they too busy feeling insulted to notice what anybody in their situation would have known that this Israel of old, this small nation that had been victimized over and over again, was disintegrating before their eyes. And by the end of the century, it would all be over. Were they so invested in their story, their hopes and aspirations, to notice that it was all coming to an end? So why did Jesus drop that line from Isaiah? Was he trying to tell them that salvation would come at his expense, not theirs, not ours? Was he trying to tell them that he was the new Israel, that their burden was over, that he was the new story? But honestly, maybe that was a little too subtle. Who can blame the people of Nazareth for not catching all of that? In any case, Jesus was just getting started. And you can't just give away the ending of the story at the beginning, right? But before any of this happened, before he started ministering to people, before he started revealing himself to the world, something very telling did happen. And even though no one saw it at the time, it tells us quite clearly what Jesus intended to do. So, actually, right before this story, at the beginning of Luke 4, before Jesus even began his ministry, there's another very well-known story that says that the Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness for 40 days. And during that 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. And here's my kind of dramatic take on it. The devil told him, Jesus, if you want to save the world, you need me. So here, I offer you comfort, power, and security. Take them and go save the world. This was Jesus' save the cat moment. What do I mean by that? This was Jesus' chance to show the world in 40 days instead of 40 seconds that he could be a savior that everybody wanted, a savior that fit their inherited story. But Jesus did not save the cat. Jesus said, no, I will not be the savior everybody expects. I will fight their battle, but not on a battlefield. And when I am victorious, my hands will be covered in blood, but not the blood of my enemies but of my own. When I defeat evil, I will be lifted high, not on a throne with a crown of gold, but on a cross with a crown of thorns. I almost said Game of Thrones. (laughs) Jesus was saying, I am throwing out the old story of humanity. No longer is it my salvation 
at your expense, but your salvation at my expense. The old story still lingers, though. Last week, we celebrated the 230th anniversary of the American Revolution, which is also known as the 4th of July, or Independence Day. And we might forget when we're enjoying our day off, going to barbecues and watching fireworks, that our country was born out of, <clears throat> out of a mixture of both idealism but also violence. And as they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. As inheritors of the American story, we embody its idealism gladly, but we also embody its violence. You might be thinking, really, violence? Okay, okay, I know that America's not perfect. You know, we have troops overseas and drones in the air. We have an endless political war in Washington. We have a Wall Street that has left our economy in ruins. That's not, that's not me. I'm not trying to, you know, I've got nothing to do with that. I'm just trying to live a good life, man. Are you sure about that? While the idealism of the American story still resonates with us ordinary folk, we have not abandoned our violence. And of course, this is not new to America, and it's not unique to America. It's a much older story. But in any case, we have not turned our swords into plowshares, to use the image from Isaiah 2. We've just turned them into other things. You know, we work hard to buy a home in the best neighborhood, and then we agitate to keep people out, to keep the wrong kinds of people from moving in. We try to be perfect people, so we can attract that mate, gather that community around us, only to find ourselves caught in a cycle of manipulation and lies once the cracks begin to show in the facade. We try to be moral, conscientious people. We do the right things. We buy the right things. You know, we go to church, practice progressive parenting, eat healthy, whatever. But whatever enlightened thinking that brought us to do these things goes out the door once. You meet people who don't quite get it. Even though we are way too polite and have too high of a self-image of ourselves to ever say it out loud, our actions make it quite clear. This is how the story goes. If I win, you must lose. My salvation at your expense. But as we saw, Jesus reverses this formula. Your salvation at my expense. Instead of saving the cat and being the savior everybody expected, Jesus chooses the cross. And some people might look at this and admire Jesus for his sacrifice and see it as the greatest morality tale that was ever told. But, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with me. But... If you believe that Jesus is Lord, if you recite the Apostles' Creed and really mean it, then these are not just isolated, inspirational actions done by one really benevolent human being. 
Okay? If Jesus is the Lord of the universe, then what Jesus did on the cross says something profound about this universe and the way it's supposed to be. In your worship guides, um, I put what is kind of a dense quote from the theologian John Howard Yoder. Um, it's in the Reflections. So I'll just let's read it. The point that the apocalyptic, and read there the gospel, makes is not only that people who wear crowns and who claim to foster justice by the sword are not as strong as they think. True as that is, we still sing, Oh, where are kings and empires now of old that went and came? It is that people who bear crosses are working with the grain of the universe. One does not come to that belief by reducing social processes to mechanical, statistical models, nor by winning some of one's battles for the control of one's own corner of the fallen world. One comes to it by sharing the life of those who sing about the resurrection of the slain lamb. Why do screenwriters so slavishly follow Save the Cat? Because it works? Because it tests well with audiences? Why do we plan our lives the way we do? Why are we so wedded to our version of the good life? Because we think it will work? Because we've seen enough pictures and articles and reviews and statistical models. We've heard the story over and over again that we've convinced ourselves that these choices must be the right ones. And even when the story fails, even when we see how its hidden violence brings out the worst in people, we still take our chances with this. But my question is, how long can we work against the grain of the universe before our hands are full of splinters? Any sane person will look at the cross and basically see failure, tragedy. It's not. This is what salvation is supposed to look like. This is what it means to be rescued to save us from the dysfunction of our old stories, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, was willing to suffer the violence of the old stories to show us the way out, to give us a new story, a new hope. A story where there is good news for the poor, comfort for the brokenhearted, sight for the blind, freedom for those in captivity. Everyone in this room, this is what the cross offers you. But salvation does not stop at those doors. In Acts 13, Luke quotes Isaiah yet again when he says that those who follow Jesus, the church, are to be a light for the nations so that it may, it may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The church is called to be good news to those who are on the outside. Which sounds great, right? But for that to happen, those who follow Jesus must follow him all the way to the cross. 
because that is what salvation looks like. As individuals, we need to ask ourselves, what would it look like to bear our cross? How would it change the way we use our human capital? How it would change how we relate to our family, to the people of this church, and to the thousands and thousands of strangers you meet in your day-to-day life. And I'm gladdened because I know that these conversations are happening in city life right now. And I think we need to pray for each other, encourage one another. As a congregation, I also think that this season, a sabbatical, has been given to us to reflect on the story that we have been living thus far and what we want it to be moving forward. Will people look at the Soul Collective years from now and think, didn't there used to be a church there? The people look really cool, really accomplished, but that's pretty much all I remember. Or will they look at the Soul Collective? You know, whether or not we still meet in this building, whether or not we're still here, and say this instead, I remember a church being here. And I remember because for as long as they were here, I saw people from all walks of life coming here, finding healing, finding new life, and offering the same to those who lived around them. Through their vocations, through their generosity, through their love, they showed us who Christ was. And maybe they wouldn't know it in these terms, because they're theological terms, or biblical terms, but maybe they would sense that the presence of Christ and the kingdom of God were so thick when city life worshiped together because the room was so full of people who knew how to bear the cross of their Lord. And they might remember that for as long as the church met here and lived among them, that every once in a while, they felt that their neighborhood, their city, at least had a chance to live into a new story. For as long as that church was here, they felt that they might finally know resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as Paul said, your cross is a stumbling block in foolishness. And it is. It's all of those things. Lord, but... It's also a stumbling block. It's also something, it's also an opportunity to stumble into something new. Something amazing. It's also an opportunity to feel the joy of a person who is a fool for God, a fool for you, a fool for what it means to live into the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go out into the world, you know, you would be our source and you would be our guide 
source of healing, a source of hope, but also a guide to the cross that has each of our names. We pray this in your name. Amen.